Good morning, Rocky Peak. First of all, I want to congratulate you for just arriving. I know it's rain in Southern California, which is like equivalent to three foot of snow in the Midwest. And you have been brave. You come on the freeways. You said, I'm not letting it stop me. I'm going to worship God. And I just want to say congratulations. I'm so proud of you. Nothing makes me prouder than the heart of this church. When you show up when it's raining, and so the brave, the feud, Rocky Peak, way to go. Prophets, priests, kings, we are here to go. So, uh, hey, my name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors, and just want to welcome you today. We don't always like fire you up like that every week, only on weeks from the rain. But if you're here and a visitor, you brave the rain, you're part of us now. So we're welcoming you as well. Inside our program is a green and white message note sheet we're going to use for our time of teaching. We use it every week. I'm really looking excited. I'm looking forward to today. We're going to cover one of the longest passages of Scripture we've ever covered today. And so I hope you don't have plans for the afternoon. We're going to be here for a while. But we're bringing extra donuts in. We'll have an intermission and uh, be ready to go. All right, so let's pray together. God, we're just excited to be here. And we do thank you for the rain. Lord, whenever it rains here, I just always think of your word of, in, in Isaiah, that as the rain comes down from the heavens and waters the earth and causes it to spring forth, so is your word that goes forth, that it accomplishes the purposes for which it's said. And so we're just so thankful, God, for the gift of your word. And today, as we unpack this incredible passage today that talks about your vision for our lives and our relationship with you, we pray you'd speak in a powerful way and that we would come around your word, we'd hear the voice of your spirit, we'd be transformed and changed by it. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today in February. And uh, he wakes up, and it's, it's a cold winter morning. He lives in the capital. It's 2,500 feet of elevation, so it's chilly outside. And as he wakes up in his bed, he can feel the, the, the coolness, the, the cold air coming in through the walls. As he gets up and he gets dressed and goes outside, it's a beautiful winter day. The sun is clear, and uh, the air is crisp. Um, but as soon as he goes outside, he begins to feel the pangs of hunger that have become so familiar. You know, after all the months and years of speculation, all the pundits, uh, all the warnings, all the threats, it was three months ago that it all came to pass that the armies came and surrounded this capital. And for the last three months, They've been a city under siege. And the only good thing about this is that it's unusual for armies to come in December. Um, and uh, the good thing about that, if you're under siege, is that it's rainy season. And so all over the city, there are buckets, there are barrels, there are containers, there are reservoirs collecting the rain. And so for the time being, water is not an issue, but the issue is food. Food supplies are running low. The question is, how long can they hold out? How long before this, this huge army breaks through the walls of their city? How long before their leaders just call it quits and say we can't win and open the gates and let them come in to see what will happen? But all he knows is that on this day, the future is uncertain. And he's not sure what's going to happen, whether they breach the walls or they're allowed in through the gates, whether their lives continue as they have, whether their lives be spared, will life never be the same? And little does he know, it's on this day, on February the 16th, that they're, all their lives are going to change forever. Well, today we are continuing the series that we've been in the last seven or eight weeks called Prophets, Priests, and Kings, Life Lessons from the Kingdom of Israel. And for those of you who are new, what we're doing in this series is we're kind of re reversing history, kind of rewinding the hands of time. And 
we're going back to an era that, that I like to describe as the kingdom era of Israel. It started a little over a thousand years before Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and it's going to last about four centuries um, until the year 586 BC when Jerusalem is going to be finally captured and completely destroyed. And uh, this is the era of prophets, priests, and kings. And what we're doing in this series is going back in time, not only to better understand the story of Israel, which in turn helps us understand the big picture story the Bible is telling for all of our lives, but also we're going back specifically to look at uh, some key life lessons that flow out of the lives of these key leaders, prophets, priests, and kings that impact our lives today, what it means to be a follower of Jesus and part of his kingdom today. And so today we come to one of the most important leaders of the kingdom era. His name is Ezekiel. He's a prophet. Uh, his name means God is my strength. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at his longest prophecy, his longest oracle day. It's so long, this chapter is longer than six books in the Old Testament, six of the, six of the minor prophets. That's what I mean. We're going to be here till three. But... Uh, <laughs> We're going to go back and look at that, but before we jump into this passage, as we've done every week in this series, we need to go and kind of set some backstory for his life and time. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Ezekiel and Exile, his life and times. And you'll notice a little diagram there, and this will be helpful to us. Uh, you'll notice there's five boxes on this diagram. They go in chronological order from left to right. And so if you were, you were here uh, last week, Dre introduced us to the worst king in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, a worst king in their history. His name was Manasseh. We'll look at him again next week. But he leads the nation for 55 years. And he leads the nation of Judah into unprecedented rebellion, idolatry, and social chaos, murder, and so on. And so uh, after he dies, uh, his son takes the throne, but only lasts for a couple of years. And so his grandson takes the throne. His name is Josiah. He's block number two. Now, if you were here last week, we met Josiah. He was one of the few good kings in the South. He led the nation to a time of national repentance and restoration with God. But remember that when, when, the prop, when, he went, when, he, when he discovered the book of the law, if you were here last week, when he discovered the book of the law in the temple and led this national revival, and he, he went before the prophetess, uh, Huldah, she said, hey, listen, Manasseh was so bad, this nation's going down. It's just a matter of time. But if you seek the Lord, that will be delayed. And so you remember, he led this national revival. He, he, he uh, reigned for 31 years from 640 to 609 B.C., uh, and then after his death, he was killed in battle with Egypt at the Valley of Megiddo. And when he was killed, uh, the nation once again reverted back to their idolatry. And this was the very, the, the, kind of the beginning of the end. It's like the start of the death throes of the nation of Judah. So if you, if you look on there, what happens is that in 605, the third block, 605, four years after his death, the new superpower in the Middle East, their name is Babylon. Right, like the city of Rome uh, is actually an empire. Well, the city of Babylon became an empire. They conquered the, the, uh, the superpower Assyria, and they began to flex their muscles and kind of march over uh, towards the Mediterranean and then down into the land of Judah. And in 605 BC, they come for the very first time and surround the city of, of uh, Jerusalem, and Jerusalem capitulates, and uh, they, they agree to serve Babylon. And, in, and it's the first time that exiles, uh, people from Sid, the city of Jerusalem, are going to be taken away permanently to live in Babylon almost 1,000 miles away. So what you need to know is over the next 20 years, from 605 to 686, about 20 years, that Babylon is going to come three times. This exile is going to have three different stages. So in stage one, 605, the city capitulates, and they just take away, Babylon takes away some of its leading citizens. Not that many, but one of the most important who will become important later is a young man named Daniel. Does that name ring a bell? Yeah, no? Okay, he, he, Daniel was a prophet. He became a prophet later on in Babylon, and there's a book that's named after him in the Old Testament. Uh, so, but they don't take that many, just some of the leading aristocrats and so on. But about seven years later, the new king of Jerusalem that's sworn allegiance to Babylon, he decides to rebel. 
And so Babylon's gonna bring their armies again, surround this city, and put it under siege. And this is gonna happen in December of 598. Now you say, I don't see that date. It's not on there. But we'll get there in just a minute. December of 598. You say, how can you be so sure it was December? We not only have the Babylonian record, we have we, or the uh, Israeli record in the Bible, we have the Babylonian record. And so they came, put the city under siege. This takes us back to the story we started the day with. This 25-year-old man uh, gets up, goes outside. The date, I want you to write this date down, February the 16th. 597. And on that February day, the city has been under siege for three months. He's the, everyone's wondering how much it will last. On that day, the king of Jerusalem decides to capitulate and open the gates and allow the hordes in. And when they come in, this time, they don't just take some of the leading citizens. They take 10,000 of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Top aristocrats, military leaders, religious leaders, top craftsmen move them to Babylon a thousand miles away. It's phase two of the exile. One of the young men of those 10,000 is a young man named Ezekiel. Uh, We're told that he had grown up in the capital. He is from a very distinguished priestly line, from the priestly line of Zadok. Whether he operated as a priest or not, we don't know. But he was 25, he was in the priestly line, that was going to be his his career. So he is taken to Babylon with other 10,000. And when they arrive there, five years later, God comes to him in a powerful vision. Now remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Isaiah and the amazing vision he had of God. Ezekiel has his. We don't have time to go into that, but it's even weirder. Powerful, and God calls him to be a prophet to the nation. Now, this is a very dangerous and difficult calling. He's one of the 10,000 that are in Babylon. And the big question is, God, why are you allowing this to happen to us? We're your chosen people. Why are we losing? Why is this disaster happening? And uh, there were many back in Jerusalem, false prophets who were saying, oh, this is a temporary setback. Yahweh's going to intervene. He's going to rescue us. He's going to bring the exiles back. And the message that God gave to Ezekiel is that is not the truth. The message he gave, if you think things are bad now, it's about to get worse. Because within five years of his uh, time in Babylon, the, the, the city of Jerusalem is going to rebel again. And this time, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, says, I've had it with this city. We are wiping it off the map. And they're going to march down. And this time when they come, it's going to, they're going to put the city under siege. And catch this, it's going to be under siege for a year and a half. Conditions are going to get desperate. And in the summer of 586, it's in July of 586, this takes us to our, third, our, our final diagram. In the summer of 586, now some scholars, there's a little bit of debate, uh, will be one year off on these, these, some of these numbers. So I always say 586, 587. But for the diagram, 586, in July of 586, they're going to breach the wall. And when they come in, they are going to be mad as hornets. Uh, and they, uh, they've been out there for a year and a half. Uh, suffering, uh, waiting for the city to fall. And when they come, they're going to slaughter anything in sight. They're coming in with their swords flailing. Uh, People are going to be fleeing to the temple, hoping the protection of God there. They're going to cut them down in the temple. Old men, young young men, uh, they're going through the city, hacking and killing and burning. Um, I'm sure women are getting raped. That's just what happened in ancient times. It is a horrendous nightmare. And about a month after that, they burned the city to the ground. They tore it down, tore down the walls and burned it. The final exiles, those who had survived the slaughter, were taken away, almost, almost all of them, to Babylon. That's stage three. So this is the area of history. Now, Ezekiel is called to be a prophet. The passage we're looking at today goes between the fourth and the fifth block. Between that second, you know, the, the second exile, when they come, that siege, and 10 years later, we're in the last five years of that time frame. 
uh, where Ezekiel's now been called to be a prophet. And the big question is, why is God allowing this devastation to happen? And that's what Ezekiel's going to be speaking today. So with that background, now we need to open our Bibles, open our apps, go to Ezekiel chapter 16. There in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Yahweh's uh, Parable, Peasant, Princess, and Prostitute. Now, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going through much of this chapter, chapter 16. And um, I need to warn you, uh, this passage is very graphic. It's sexually very explicit. We'll talk about this more when we get there. But I want to do just a quick highlight for those because sometimes we'll have parents with younger children and you don't want me to be the first one to be talking to your children about this topic. So you may be developing an exit strategy for yourself. All right. So let's, let me set up this passage before we jump in. You know, God speaks to his people in many different ways. In this passage, Yahweh is going to speak to the nation of Israel, both those in Jerusalem still and those in Babylon. He's going to be speaking in the form of a parable or like a short story. Think of it like a fairy tale, except this fairy tale turns into a horror story. And in this fairy tale, in this short story, this parable, um, there's a couple of some key characters. And so Yahweh is the king in this story. He's like a, a great king. Israel is going to be compared to a young baby girl that is given birth by her parents. They don't want her for whatever reason. This was common in the ancient world. You don't want her. Maybe she's a girl. You want a boy. And they're just going to abandon her, throw her away to die at the side of the road. This was common in ancient times. The king is going to come along with his entourage. He's going to see this bloody baby that's just been abandoned there. And for whatever reason, his heart goes out to this child. And he says, I want her to live. And he gives orders for this child to, to, be, to be saved and rescued. And then she's going to grow up and become a young woman. And years later, he happens to be going by seeing her again. But she's still kind of poor, naked. And so he's going to take her in. And he's going to turn her from a kind of from, from peasant into like princess. And he's going to kind of give her the best of the land. And eventually, he's going to propose to her. And out of all the women in his kingdom, he is going to choose her to be his queen. And so it really is like a Cinderella-type story. And the question is, how will this Cinderella, Israel's Cinderella, how will Israel's Cinderella respond to this incredible prince who's come into her life to rescue her, all right? And so that's the storyline. So here we go. We're going to move through rapidly because we have a lot of ground to cover. So the word of the Lord. So Lord, all caps, means what? Yahweh. So I'll be using that. So the word of Yahweh comes to me. So God speaks to, is, to, uh, to Ezekiel, and he says, here's the message I want. Here's, I want you to tell this story to the nation of Israel. Help them understand why this disaster is happening. He says, son of man, which is just his way of saying like a human being. It was his name for Ezekiel. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says to Jerusalem. So remember, he's in Babylon speaking to the captives, but also speaking, sending messages back to Jerusalem. He says, your ancestry and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. So as the nation of Israel was given birth in a pagan land of Canaan, he said, your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in <coughs> cloths. <coughs> in other words, you were not taken care of as a normal child when, when you were born. Um, and in verse uh, 5, so no one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field for on the day that you were born, you were despised, right? So this peasant girl's born. They don't want a girl. They throw her out. She's just kind of bloody laying there crying, ready to die, abandoned. And so then I passed by. So this is Yahweh, the great king. Yahweh passed by, and he sees you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I, I said to you, live. He gives the order to his on rush. I want to save that baby girl. 
And so I made you grow up like a plant in the field. You grew up and you developed, you entered puberty, your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, and yet you were still stark naked. So she's a peasant girl. Uh, the king has moved on, but she's grown up. Now she's a young woman, but still very poor. Um, and uh, so later, she's now a teenager. Uh, he passes by. The king happens to be coming by many years later. And when I look at you, I saw that you were old enough for love. And you're old enough to be married. And so the king is going to propose to her, this peasant girl, and kind of turn her kind of from peasant to princess to queen here. We're going to see this. And so the way they would say that, they would spread the corner of your garment. I remember the story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth lays at his feet, and, and she says, spread the, put your garment over me. It was a way of proposing. And so he says, I spread the corner of my garment over you, and I covered your naked body, and I gave you my solemn oath. So he enters, he marries her. I give you my solemn oath. I entered into a covenant with you. Remember like the nation of Israel entered into covenant with God like marriage at Mount Sinai. Remember this is a parable. Declares to the sovereign Lord and you became mine. And so in verse nine, he's gonna fix her up now. He's gonna take her to the castle and make her his queen and she's gonna get the best of everything. She's gonna get the best beauty treatments, the greatest food, she's gonna get the best clothing. He's gonna give her the black Amex and say, go shopping and go down to Rodeo Drive and buy anything you want, you know, I don't care. Price is not an issue. So I bathed you with water and I washed the blood from you and put ointments on you and I clothed you with embroidered dress and I put sandals of fine leather on you and I dressed you in fine linen and I covered you with costly garments and I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck and I put a ring on your nose. I love that, some of you have nose rings. You now have biblical warrant for that. I saw, I saw a woman after the service last night, she had two nose rings. Thank you for sharing that. I just want to point out that if you're a man with a nose ring, there's no biblical warrant. She's a woman, all right? No, just kidding, just kidding. All right. Um, verse, uh, I put a beautiful crown on your head. Verse 13. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen, costly fabric, embroidered cloth. Your, your food was honey. It was olive oil. It was the finest flour. You ate the best of the land. You became very beautiful, and you rose to be a Queen. All right, so we're, we've gone from, from peasant to princess, now queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares Yahweh. All right, so up to this point, it's an awesome story, right? This is like Cinderella. The, you know, she's like worse than Cinderella. It's an abandoned peasant girl rescued by the great king of the, the land and then later on like taken into the castle and blessed with every blessing and, and every beauty treatment and she becomes the most beautiful woman in the world and he takes her to be his queen. It's an amazing story. At this point, Disney wants the script <laughs> until they read on. It's at this point they'll reject the script. So the question is, how will this abandoned baby girl, had nothing, this peasant girl who's been raised up to be the most beautiful woman in the world, the queen of the king, how will she respond? How will Cinderella respond to the prince? The prince has not just married her and taken it, like there should be living happily ever after, right? That's how the story should go. How will she respond? And this is where the story becomes very dark. And he says in verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to become a, a prostitute. Peasant to princess to prostitute. So she's living in the castle now, most beautiful woman in the world. And she is getting restless. And the story is unbelievable because now instead of being faithful to her king, She's going to go out in the street, and she's just like for random men. I don't even care who it is. I don't even care. Just like, hey, sleep with me. And she takes all the beauty, all the blessing that he's given her and uses that to seduce random men. Doesn't even care who they are. As the story goes on, like her sexual lust, like her sexual addiction is going to get so great that, that pretty soon it's like, it's not like people are paying her. It's like she's paying them. The language in here in a few verses is going to get very graphic. 
It's interesting because as graphic is in the English, it is much more graphic in the Hebrew. One scholar described this as that, it's sort of like this, that, you know, there's ways of, of describing sexuality. There's ways of describing our, our physical anatomy that are, that are like uh, anatomically correct, right? And then there are ways of describing it like on the street language. This is more like street language. In fact, the translators are not always sure what to do with this. Because how do you write a Bible with like those kind of words? And so they tone it down for us. But what we're about to go into, have you ever heard of shock radio? This is like shock scripture. As Yahweh is pulling out all the stops for his people to, to try to help them understand how far they've fallen and where they've gone. And so he says in verse 50, you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places. And so remember, it's a parable. What he's going to say is you've taken all the blessings, the wealth that I've given you as a nation and you've used it to worship other gods, to build high places of worship where you'd worship other gods. He says, verse 18, you took some of the garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Talking about spiritual adultery, the worship of other gods. You went to him and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry that I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols. You engaged in prostitution with them. You took your embroidered clothes to put on, put on them. You offered my, my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, the olive oil, the honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened. This is how Cinderella responded. But that's not it. It gets worse. In 26, you took the sons and daughters whom you bore to me. So the king and the queen, right? They're, they're now married. They're having sons and daughters. And you sacrifice them as food to the idols. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about child sacrifice. We've talked about that through a series. The taking of your children and putting them into the fire to burn them alive as offerings to gods like Molech. He says, it wasn't enough just to worship other gods. You took our children, our kids, my kids, and you burned them alive, murdered them in the fire. So in, 26, in verse 20, you took, our, you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution you know, not enough, your worship of other gods? You slaughtered my children and you sacrificed them to idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Cinderella's forgotten her own story. And so this, this powerful word of woe from the prophets, this message of doom. Woe, woe to you, declares Yahweh. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and you made a lofty shrine in every public square. In the city of Jerusalem, before the final uh, destruction, there were not only like uh, worship of idols in the temple and the temple grounds, but there were these shrines throughout the city of uh, places of worship throughout the city and he says um, in verse 25 it's, he's going to begin to get very graphic here at every street corner you built your lofty shrines and you degraded your beauty spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by and he's going to begin to talk about Israel's now not just their worship of foreign gods, but entering into treaties with foreign nations for their protection, like Assyria, uh, like Babylon, like um, the Canaanites, or the Philistines were, the, were on the seacoast, the Mediterranean seacoast, Egypt, where they, they would enter in these treaties, what would require that you'd worship their gods, right? So it's a political and spiritual and military alliance. 
And so he begins to, to, to move on. So he says in verse 25, every street corner you built your lofty shrines, degraded your beauty, spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your neighbors with large genitals. So in the original, much more graphic. It's interesting, later in Ezekiel, Yahweh will use this term again, and he'll say, you are so uh, hungry for sex, you, you would go after these other gods uh, and their big penises that were the size of donkeys. And he, he would say, and their emissions were like emissions of horses. Like straight, super graphic language. Verse 26, you engage your prostitution with the Egyptians, your neighbors with large genitals. You arouse my anger with your increasing promiscuity. And so, as a result, I stretched out my hand and I reduced your territory. As they began to trust and and worship the gods of four nations, God begins to give them power and lose, they're losing their land. The nation's becoming smaller and smaller. And he said uh, in verse, uh, middle of that, verse 27, I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too, and because, because you are insatiable, again, like a woman with a sexual addiction, just anyone, anywhere, and you increase your promiscuity to include Babylonia, the land of merchants. And even then, you are not satisfied. So you're running after other gods, but they're not satisfying you're the deepest hunger of your heart. And so God says, I'm, I'm filled with fury against you. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the, the wrath of God. Here's a great example. I'm filled with fury against you, declares the sovereign Yahweh. When you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute, when you build your mounds at every street corner and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you are unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. All prostitutes receive gifts, but you give gifts to your lovers, bribing them to come out to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you're the opposite of others no one runs after you for your favors. You're the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of Yahweh. Here's the judgments going to come from the king. This is what the sovereign Yahweh says. Because you poured out your lust and exposed your naked body in your promiscuity with your lovers, and because of all the detestable idols, and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore, I'm going to gather around you all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them from all around, all these other nations, and will strip you in front of them, and they will see you stark naked. And I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. Now I'll bring on you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger, and I will deliver you into the hands of your lovers. Again, these other nations and they will come and they'll tear down your mounts and they'll destroy your lofty shrine. The city of Jerusalem is going to be leveled. And they'll strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you stark naked. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. Exactly what's going to happen when Babylon comes within five years and breaches the wall. And they'll burn down your houses and they'll inflict punishment on you on the sight of many women and I'll put a stop to your prostitution, and you will no longer pay your lovers, and then my wrath against you will subside, and my jealous anger will turn away from you, and I will be calm and be no longer angry. And the reason is because you did not remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with all these things. I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the sovereign Yahweh. Merry Christmas. Wow, what a tale. And if the tale ended there, it would just be a tragic tale, wouldn't it? A tale of this Cinderella who's rescued by a prince who loves her, says his affection, brings her to the castle, gets down on one knee, proposes to her, gives her everything, all the wealth, the beauty, the love that he can shed in his kingdom, and then she starts sneaking out and sleeping with anyone passing by. Until finally, because of her murder and because of her promiscuity, says, that's enough. 
judgment has to come. It's a tragic tale. But here's the thing. It's one of the things I love the prophets is that the story never ends there. And what we're going to see, what's crazy about this, so crazy, is that this king who's been so betrayed by this woman, he can never stop loving her. And in spite of all she's done, this is not the end of the story. He is going to continue to pursue her to bring her back. And so if we jump to the end of the chapter, which is what we need to do just for the sake of time, but if you go to verse 59, it says, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says. He says, just like we just read, I will deal with you as you deserve. This, the judgment's coming because you've despised my oath. You've, you've broken our wedding vows by breaking the covenant. He said, yet, and there's the big yet, you want to circle that, yet. And here is where the, the story turns again. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you. You may have forgot our wedding vows, but I never have. Uh, on the day of, of, our, of your youth, and I will establish, at some point in the future, I will establish an everlasting covenant. There will come a day I will renew those vows, or in the words of Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 31, I will form a new covenant with you. And if you skip to verse 62, and so I will establish my covenant with you at some point in the future, and you will know that I am Yahweh. You will once again be restored to me, and he said, and then he catches this, then when I have made atonement for you. You catch that? That should not be how this reads. What you'd expect, hey, is when you have made atonement for what you've done. It's not that. Because the reality is, Israel can never atone for what she's done. There's no way to make it up. And so the king says, believe it or not, I am taking responsibility for this relationship. And I will do for you what you cannot do. I will come up with a way to make atonement for you so that we can be restored and we can enter into an everlasting covenant. And this tragic tale can end like it should have ended all along that they lived happily ever after. And so he says, I will make atonement for you um, for what you've done, and then you will remember. You'll come back to your senses. You'll remember who you were, Cinderella, and you're, you'll have eyes for me only, and you'll be ashamed of what you've done, and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Yahweh. So the story that starts so promising ends in tragedy, and, there's just, and then it's like the phoenix is reborn with the promise that one day God will enter into a new covenant and of course, as we know from the rest of the prophets and later on in Ezekiel, this new everlasting covenant is tied to the rise of the great king from the line of David who will one day come and enter the covenant. So Ezekiel talks about that later on in his prophecies. Now, that's the passage, right? Uh, what I want to do today in the time that we have is I want to highlight three big picture life lessons that flow out of this about who God is, about who we are, what it means to be part of his kingdom. Um, and, uh, and then as we, as we jump into that, I'm going to come back at the end and ask one very pointed question. Now, it's not going to take a lot of time to develop these, these points because uh, they're, they're so, you know, we've, we've taken the time to go through the parable and they're so clear. But let's jump in. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Peasant, Princess, and Prostitute, Three Life Lessons. So first, first lesson. First thing that jumps out at me is that Yahweh is a lover. Who is the God of Israel? Who is our God? God is a lover. Uh, now this is powerful because this is one of the most powerful images the Bible uses to describe who God, who is God? What is God like? What kind of relationship does he want with you and I? What is our story about? One of the most common images that's used by the prophets and throughout the Old Testament is Yahweh is a lover. And of course, this is not just an Old Testament teaching, this is a New Testament teaching, right? Because in the New Testament, the people of God are called what? The bride of Christ. And the story, this is how the story ends in the book of Revelation, the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? And so, it's so interesting that God would say, hey, who is God? 
What is he like? Yahweh is like a passionate lover. He is like a king who is in love and head over heels over a young maiden. Now, this is interesting because if you were here last week, Dre reminded us of something that Jesus talked about. We talk about it often here at Rocky Peak. But remember that Jesus was once asked, of all the commandments in the law, what is the most important? What is God's top priority? And you remember Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6, and he said, this is the top priority, that you would love the Lord your God with what? All your heart. Can we say it together? All your heart, and all your mind, and all your soul. You'd love the Lord your God. This is God's top priority for your life. We would love God with all our heart. Now, the interesting thing is that when we hear a young man use that language to talk about a young woman he's met, we know exactly what he means, right? Like, let's say that I was to bring a young man up here. He's been dating a, a, dating a young woman for a year and a half, two years. And, uh, and, and, and he was like, hey, hey, Michael, I just want to do this thing. It'd be super cool if I could propose from the stage, right? So right in the middle of a sermon, we bring him up, and he calls her out, and we're all there, and we're cheering, right? And so afterwards, we're interviewing. We're interviewing, like, hey, well, tell us about your relationship. And there, some of you over here are getting ideas, I know. But uh, anyway, so that would be really super cool. I wonder if they do that. I'm in his life group. But uh, anyway, um, but uh, anyway, so, so let's say we're interviewing him, and we say, like, hey, tell us about this relationship. And he's explaining his thing. And and he says, you know, I've just come to place. I just want to spend the rest of my life with her. And I, love, I just love her with all my heart. Like when he says that, we don't need any explanation of what he means, right? We're not like, well, help us understand. <laughs> when you say you love her with all your heart, like what are you really saying? Like are you saying that you're not so big on her, but your mother thinks she's an amazing catch. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Uh, he, he's like, we didn't expect him to say, well, you know, I've just dated a lot of women, and honestly, none of them have been that great. But of all of them, she's the best, and time is running out. <laughs> like, we, we're not like... Like, we don't need a lot of explanation of what it means when someone says, I love you with all my heart. Like, this is the language of love. We get this, right? We, we understand this. We, we, we know he's not saying, like, you know, I'm not really that into her, but I just kind of think it's the right thing to do. Uh, we've been dating for two years. She's really pressuring me. And frankly, I just can't tell her no, so I decided to say yes. I think it's the right thing to do. We don't need that kind of explanation. We know what it means. But the weirdest thing is, when we come to the Bible and God says, my top priority is you love me with all your heart, or when Jesus says, here's the top priority, love God with all your heart, we do this weird spiritual jujitsu that we say like, oh, that means that we need to love God because it's the right thing to do. Oh, we need to love him because, well, it beats the alternative. I've tried the other way, life doesn't work. So uh, it's not my favorite, but I think it's the best option out there. Uh, like we think it's like, yeah, I love God with all my heart. That means go to church every week and give my tithe and serve. Yeah, I love God with all my heart. You see what I'm saying? We do this weird, like we make language stand on its head. We retranslate language. We come up with religious language. To love a woman with all my heart means one thing. To love God with all my heart means something different. Can I tell you something? When the Bible says that we're created to love God with all our heart, what it means is that we are created, you and I are designed, that he would be our first love our deepest passion, our top priority, to know him, that that relationship 
means more to us than any other relationship, any other pursuit. We have eyes for him only. Whatever else happens in life, we're running hard after him. Because to know him, to please him, to love him, it's a top priority. We love him with all our hearts. That's what it means. And so what we see from the prophets, what we see from Ezekiel 16, what we see throughout the Bible is that Yahweh is a lover. Jesus is a lover. Do you remember we studied in 2 Corinthians a while back? Paul says, I'm, I'm so afraid for you that I betrothed you to one husband, to, to one groom, to, to Christ. I'm afraid that you've been deceived and pulled away after other lovers. We see this imagery from cover to cover. Yahweh is a lover. The relationship he wants with you is not a passionless duty, obligation, the right thing to do. He is after you and he has created you to be after him. Yahweh is a lover. Number two, the second principle that jumps out at me is that something is wrong with us. You know, and if it were my note sheet, I would add the word seriously. <laughs> Something is seriously wrong with us. Like, when you read the story of this Cinderella, this would never sell, right? Like, if you heard this story, like, someone told you this story outside a church, it was just a similar story that went something like this. What would you say about this woman? You would say, I don't know what happened to her, but this woman's got issues. <laughs> right? This behavior, I don't know why she's like she is, but something must happen. This is crazy. But here's the thing. The more you read the Bible and you watch the story of the Bible unfold, what you find is the story of Israel is our story. Israel is just a case study of the human race. What would happen if you were to take a nation, a nation with nothing, let's say a nation with slaves, a nation has nothing to look forward, that's being beaten by their mass. What would happen if you took a nation, the worst kind of nation, and you were to rescue them supernaturally from slavery and reveal yourself as God in amazing shows of power and tell them you want to put their, your love on them, invite them to be married to you. And they said, yes, and you promised, I will bless you if you listen and follow and maintain our love relationship. And you carry out your end of the blessing and then they take all that blessing and then they completely rebel and run after other gods. See, what happened to Israel is not just Israel's story, it's a story of our race. And what we discover as we begin, even often we discover this even after we come to Jesus, we begin to realize that more than ever, there's something broken in us. There's within each one of us a magnetic pull to the dark side. There's within each one of us this this thing that makes us run after other lovers, something that to take the good gifts of our creator and to make them into our ultimate value and worship them as our God, which is what Israel do. Take the blessings, the food, in the, in the parable, the food, the gold, the silver, and to make other gods. I don't know if you've ever read Romans chapter 7, where the apostle Paul says, I don't understand myself because the good that I want to do, I can't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Remember how he ends that chapter? Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And some, some, some believers, some scholars think that he's talking about his life after coming to Jesus, some before, I think before, but that's not really important. We've all been there. Right? We've all, haven't you been there? I've been there where you know what's right, you want to do what's right, you have the best of intentions, but you just fail and you fall and you run after other gods. There's something seriously wrong with us. The story of Israel is our story. We have all done this. 
We have all forsaken our first love and run after other lovers. Number three. The good news is number three. You're like, I was hoping we'd get some good news here. (laughs) Number three is that Yahweh's promise is our salvation. Yahweh's promise, remember the end of the story? Like after the judgment comes this amazing promise that he's not done with Israel, that he's going to pursue her He's going to bring her back. He's going to make atonement. He's going, to, he's going to open her eyes. She's going to remember her story. And the, and the story is really going to end happily ever after. This is not just a promise to Israel. This is a promise to us. It's, it's a promise of our salvation. And what's interesting is that later on in Ezekiel, after the, remember we had the five, we had the diagram of the five blocks, after the fifth block happens, the final destruction of Jerusalem, cities level, burned to the ground, captives taken away, stories over, lowest point in their history. After that, shortly after that, in Ezekiel 36, God comes to the prophet and says, now at this lowest point, I've got to, I want to talk about that everlasting covenant. I, back in 16, I want to give you more information about what's going to happen. And there's this beautiful promise. It's not just a promise for, for them. It's a promise for us. In Ezekiel 36, where God says, Yahweh says, listen, this is what's going to happen. I will sprinkle clean water on you, on the nation, and you'll be clean. I'm going to cleanse you from your sin, your rebellion. I'll cleanse you from your impurities and from all your what? Idols. Now, we're going to come back to this later. I want you to pay attention to the language here. There is nothing about what Israel is going to do. It's about what Yahweh is going to do. Do you see that? It is, I will sprinkle clean water and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you. Notice all the eyes in here. God is active. He's the one who's going to do this supernaturally. He says, I will give you a new heart. Right now you have a heart of a prostitute. We've we've documented that. He said, but I will give you a new heart. I'll put new passions in you. I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove your, your heart of stone, this lack of sensitivity. I will give you a heart of flesh, a new tender heart. And then comes my favorite part, and I will put my spirit in you, and I will move you to follow my decrees. Remember Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant? I will write my law on your hearts. Same, same idea. And so you'll be careful to follow my So God says that the problem with Israel is Israel. The problem is her heart. She's a prostitute at heart. It's not just a behavioral. Remember what Dre talked about last week, how it starts with the heart? The problem with Israel is not her action, it's her heart. She is a prostitute at heart. And catch this, we are all spiritual prostitutes at heart. Apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, we will all run after other gods. And this is the promise that God is one day, is going to supernaturally enter into a new covenant. And of course, this covenant is tied to the coming of Messiah. The big picture story of the Bible is tied to Messiah. And this is why Jesus, on the last night, he's with his men. Before he's arrested, they're having Passover. And he passes out the bread. Remember, he said, this is my body. And then he said this next. Look at Luke 22. In the same way, after his supper, he took the cup and he said, this, is the cu- this cup is the what? The new covenant. The new covenant promised by Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant promised by Ezekiel today and Ezekiel 16, the everlasting covenant. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. God was coming to make atonement for our race. And that Jesus, in going to that cross, was making atonement for a race of prostitutes. So that he would have the right to pour out his spirit and change us from the inside out. So we could become the people we were created to be. Where he would be our first love, our deepest passion, our highest priority. That's the promise that's our promise. Now, this raises an important question. There are your note sheet. 
As we wrap this up, peasant, princess, or prostitute, and prostitute, the key question. And, and I want to ask you a very straightforward question. And this is a question only you can answer, uh, only you can answer with the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, this is not for your neighbor. It's not for raising it. It's just for you and God. But hot tip, I'd encourage you to be honest because God knows. So it's a, it's a, it's a deeply penetrating question. And in light of what we've studied today, here's the question, who is your first love? We've seen today Israel, their, their betrayal, but who is your first love? If I would ask you today, who is, what, who is your first love? What is your deepest passion in life? What is your top priority? What's interesting is that even after we come to Jesus and we enter into covenant with God based on the atonement of Christ, his death for us, and we receive the gift of his spirit, that this change of heart is not automatic, is it? That, that God comes and he moves us, but we have a choice whether to listen and follow and let him transform our heart and passions or not. We, we've all been there. Uh, in the book of James, in the New Testament, the apostle James writing to a group of Christ's followers, you know, so they've come to Jesus, they've entered into covenant by the atonement, they've received the gift of the Spirit, but this was a group of Christ's followers who are not listening and following, and, and so James kind of resurrects this Old Testament concept of spiritual adultery, and he applies it to these New Testament believers. And this is what he says, he says, you adulterers, this is in the New Living Translation, you adulterers, and he's talking about spiritual adultery here, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you what? An enemy of God. Now, catch this, he's not saying being friends with people in the world. We should be friends with people in the world, that's how they're going to come to know Christ. He's talking about friends of the world, embracing the world's values, the world's standards, the world's, world's priorities, the world's opinions or thoughts. He says, just in case you missed it, I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. You have to choose. And he says, do you think the scriptures have no meaning? Remember the context of spiritual adultery? He says, hey, do you think these scriptures like, like Ezekiel 16 and many others that talk about Yahweh being a lover and passionately pursuing, do you think that he's just blowing smoke? Do you think that's just poetic language? Like, what are you thinking? And he goes on and he says, they say, these scriptures say, that God is passionate. We've seen it today. Yahweh's a passionate lover. That God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And so the question is, in your life, who is your first love? You know, even as followers of Jesus, we can run after other gods, can't we? And it really varies from person to person. Like, we, we can all have our own unique gods. Like, for some of us, we, for us, the God is the God of romance. Like, in our culture today, one of the biggest gods in our culture is the God of romance. We just believe if we find, find the right person, we'll live happily ever after. And it happens, and sometimes like even like in our dating life, or whatever, we'll make compromises in who we're, we're dating or, or who we're pursuing because we've met someone and the chemistry is so strong and we're in what I, I like to affectionately call that rocket blast stage of relationship. You know, the stage where the guy's offering, can I get your gas, can I wash your car? You know, anything else I can do for you? And the reason he's acting like that is because the feeling he gets when he's with her is so powerful, it becomes his God. And he really thinks that if he marries this person, that he'll feel like this always. And he probably will for about a year and a half. <laughs> and then he's going to find out who he really married and what she's really like. And she's going to find out what he's really like. And all of a sudden, you've bowed down and worshipped this God of romance that you really believe, if I serve this God, it'll make me happy. And you find that your insatiable lust for another God has really left you empty. Like, if you have any question of that, then, hey, all those people that get married, they all felt the same way. They all felt the same way. And less than 50% of them are going on being married today. 
Because right, they, they bow down and worship another God, a God that can't satisfy. When you make uh, uh, another person, when you make them your God, you put a pressure on them they were never designed to bear. They can't be your God. When you make yourself your happiness depend on another person, you're asking them to do something that no one else can do. For others of us, it's not that. For, for some of us, it's achievement, right? If I can just achieve, if I can just rise the ladder at work, if I can just, and meanwhile, our spouse is calling, hey, what about us, you're, the kids, what about, you're, you're forsaking, but we just really think if we can, if we can climb that ladder and, and get to the top, that we'll be, well, so we, that becomes our God. Our career becomes our God. It becomes more important than Jesus, more important than our family. Right? And then we, we get to the top of the ladder and we find out that it's leaning on the wrong building. We've been climbing the wrong direction. We've made our career our God. And we could go on and on. For some people, it's just, hey, my kids, you make your kids your God. And then they grow up and they leave you. <laughs> and then you try to chase after them. And you try to control who they're dating. And then they get married, you try to control their families, and they're like, we don't want you, we don't want you. And you're like, no, but you're my God. I'll bow down, I'll do whatever. Right? See, we can, we can deal with money, we can do it with people, but it's just this false allure of the human heart. We take something good in creation, something that God has given as a gift, and we make it the ultimate value. And we bow down and we worship. We take something in creation and we worship it instead of the creator. And it backfires. And it leaves us insatiable, thirsty, hungry. So the question is, we'll say, so if, if that's you, if you're, if you're identifying with that, you know, what, how do we come back? How do we come back from exile? And I think the answer is very simple. It starts by just embracing the reality of our idols, you know? It starts by just going before God and saying, I've made this an idol. I'm dependent on this. This has become the highest value of my life, and I, I want to turn from that. Just a, starts with a confession. But then I think, secondly, it goes to a request, and I would encourage you to begin to pray the prayer of Ezekiel 36 over your life. You say, God, would you come? I can't change my heart, but I know you can. I need you to put a new spirit. I need you to, to take my heart of stone. I need you to give me a heart of flesh. I need you to put your spirit in me. I need you to move me to do your will. One thing I learned a long time ago is that even as followers of Jesus, we cannot create passion for God in our own lives. No amount of Bible study, prayer, fasting, service, whatever. Those are all beautiful things and they're gifts and conduits that God's Spirit uses. But no amount of kind of self-directed change can change the human heart. The only one who's capable of changing the passions of your heart and mind are the Holy Spirit. So it's not our job to initiate the change. Our job is to cooperate with the change. And to go before the Lord and to ask him to change our heart. And here's a key, to give him permission to do so. To say, God, I, I can't change my heart. I'm into my career. I'm into my kids. I'm into this. I'm into that. I know it. I know it's wrong. I can see it. But I can't make me love you more than them. It's just the way it is. Like, I need your help. And God understands all that. He understands he's the one who has to make it happen. It's our job not to initiate, but it's our job to cooperate and to say, God, here I am, and, if, and I give you permission. If you can make me love you more than any of these other gods that I, about, I give you permission, and then you need to be ready to take action when the Holy Spirit shows you what to do. Because when the Holy Spirit's directing you, everything changes. Like, let me give you just a simple example. This is a uh, not because it's the most important example for your life, but it's really easy to understand. Like for some of you, you're, the God of your life is possessions or it's money. It's a common God of the human race. And when we come and say, God, change my heart, that he will do that, but he'll often give us a first step. And the area of money, it's often in the area of giving. 
he'll say, I want you to start giving to break the power of that idol. And as you obey, your heart will change. I'm just using that as an illustration. For some of you, it'll be like, step out of that relationship, turn off that show, get out of this, change this career, do this different. Like, the, it'll be, it's, it's so creative because our gods are so many. But the important thing is, is that whatever he shows you, simply do that. And as you do that, he will change your heart. We don't change our hearts. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts. But we, we, we have to give him permission to do that. And then the willingness to obey when he says, this is the way, walk ye in it. Amen? Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We're so thankful for your, the power and the beauty of your word, this amazing passage. God, we confess that as fallen people, we have hearts that run after other gods. And we confess we cannot fix that. We need the power of your spirit. And so we pray, Lord, as we, we come into this time of worship, as we bring you our tithes, our gifts, our offering, as we, um, as we open our heart and say, God, I am willing, I give you permission to change my heart, that you, as the song says, you would give us a whole heart, that our heart would be whole towards you, and that we would run after you, not, not with a religious love, not with a, a love of duty or obligation, but a passionate love that says you are number one, our first love, our deepest passion, our highest priority. We pray this in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Would you stand with me?